Product Breakfast Product Club. Product Breakfast 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 Club. That was good. Cool. I think that was good. Well, this is the Product Breakfast Club podcast. Welcome. I'm Jake Knapp with a little bit of a cold, but still doing well. I am a designer who's also a wannabe writer. And Jonathan is my co-host. Jonathan, who are you? Hello, everybody. My name is Jonathan Courtney. I don't have a cold. I never get sick, okay? Oh, God. Not one of these Must be nice. freaks. Must be nice. Freaks like Jake. I am the co-founder of a design agency in Berlin called AJ and Smart. I'm Irish and hanging out here at the AJ and Smart office. And we are live streaming this episode of the Product Breakfast Club on YouTube. So things are likely to go terribly wrong. And we're going to be taking questions <laughs> from our loving audience um, over the next hour. We'll start taking questions. And yeah, let's jump right into it. How's it going, Jake? Good so far. This has been a great experience so far setting this up because you're doing all the hard work. That is very true. Just for a second, I want to talk about how amazing it is that I'm in San Francisco. You're in Berlin. We're like talking to each other on video. People could be sending us messages from anywhere. What a waste of technology that we're the ones in control of this. I mean, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. It's amazing. You guys aren't as old as I am. You don't understand how amazing this is, but it's crazy. That's very true. Anyway, I am... Getting ready to take off on Thursday and meet you in the Nordic countries for some workshops. Right. And I just started working on a new book, which is a science fiction book. So that's just starting off. Got about 6,000 words so far, kind of breaking the ice on that new project. So you're not really a designer anymore. You're just like a guy who stays at home and writes stuff, right? Yeah, that's pretty accurate. (laughs) (laughs) So basically, no one should really be asking you any questions here on this live stream. I was thinking about that, actually. Yeah, I was listening to the last episode of the podcast, which you interviewed somebody. I wasn't even on the podcast. And it was pretty good, actually. I think that maybe should be the new format. But yeah, I was realizing that I actually I'm not really a designer. I haven't done, you know, actual design work in a while. So people should be hesitant to take anything I say too seriously. Yeah. No, I think it's like there are some timeless qualities of being a designer. So we're going to be in, you're going to be flying over here next week. We're going to be doing Helsinki, Copenhagen and Stockholm, all one day design sprint workshops. It's going to be fun. That's going to be tiring as well. I think it's going to be snowy as well. It's going to be invigorating. It's going to be great. It could be a little tiring, but I think it will be great, actually. Uh, Usually, those are really fun. I usually leave a workshop pretty excited, so I think it'll be good. There's a couple of events around it as well. There's a couple of like after parties and pre-parties, and I don't know, Jake, I don't know if you know this, but stuff's been set up around those events. It's just all partying. I'm a pretty exciting person to have there. Yeah, I know. I might even have uh, one of those sparkling waters you guys have over there in Europe. I don't know. Might get a little crazy. God, Americans are so prudish, man. It's ridiculous. You're so you're also you're also clean, but underneath we all know that the darkness, we the darkness lies. <laughs> so Jake, do you think we should jump into questions? We already have quite a big build up of yeah. questions. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah, yeah. Let's just yeah. let's just start it. Let's just start it. The first question I'm going to ask, so this is from Matt Elbert. Hey Matt, I started a UX design job on Monday and I was curious as to what you would say is the best thing I can do going into this new job as more of a junior UX role? My first thing was seek out the more experienced folks on the team, whether they're designers or product managers, you know, the executive, whoever you get your hands on, who's got more experience and ask them to tell you how things work. You know, ask them and tell you like, how do you do your job? Tell you a little bit about how from their perspective, what's important to the business. 
have them tell you a little bit about what they need you to do, how you can be helpful. Because the great thing about starting out is everything is new and anything you learn, you'll be building up. And when you start in any job, I think it's really important to come in with that mindset of a learning mindset and trying to be as helpful as possible. And I think that's true whether you've got zero years of experience or 10 years or 20 years of experience, you come in that way and you start to build a good rapport with people, good relationships with people. And of course, that's just going to speed up your learning. If you broadcast to people that you're in a learning mode, they're going to want to point stuff out to you. They're going to want to help you in return. And that would be my place to start is building those relationships, seeking out knowledge and having conversations with people. What about you, John? What would you say? If you're starting on Monday, what I would do this weekend is the first thing I would do is I would read the book Hacking Growth by Sean Ellis. What? I Not re- Sprint? Oh, yeah. Oh, well, no, wait a second. Oh. Wait a second, man. Wait okay, a second, okay, man. Okay. That comes, okay that's coming. Okay, okay, I'm okay, assuming okay. this person read Sprint if they're on this stream. <laughs> uh, uh, good thinking. See? So I would read the book Hacking Growth by Sean Ellis. And the reason for that is I think that as a designer, the way to become a really, really like useful and valuable designer is to understand the entire picture of the product and the business, right? I think one of the mistakes that designers make is that they focus so much on like the user and the actual world of design that they end up becoming like a production type person. But if you understand why the product is being built and the strategy behind it, you're going to be able to get a seat at the table much, much quicker. And you're going to be able to seem like a more valuable employee much, much quicker because you will be more valuable. And hacking growth, the reason I say that as like a step I would take immediately, it's because it is a book about essentially the thing that every company is interested in, no matter what product they're designing or building, it's growth. And growth hacking is sort of this way of like, how can you increase customer acquisition or how can you increase this or how can you increase that? Almost every product that you're going to be working on Maybe you're trying to improve the UX, but the reason is because they want to increase something. And the book Hacking Growth will give you the vocabulary you're going to need to be speaking to product managers, speaking to people in the marketing departments. And you're just going to come across as somebody who actually has a lot more knowledge than pure UX. At least for me, having this extra bit of knowledge helped me to shoot my way up the hierarchy in these companies and become like best buddies of the CEOs and stuff like this because I was the designer who could speak their language. You don't need to read the whole book, Hacking Growth. Just read like for two hours or something and you'll get it. And then I wrote an article on Medium. You can kind of Google it called The Golden Age of UX is Over. And the basic point of that article is that pretty much what I said, you can't just come into a company anymore and focus purely on the user and usability. And I'm going to like this user-centered design thing is the only thing that matters. It's not true anymore. This has become table stakes. You need to understand the bigger picture of the product So understanding strategy, understanding growth, these things are super important. I put a lot of links in there as well for that. That's a pretty good answer. I mean, in summary, on the one hand, be a nice person, meet people, ask questions. That's my advice. Be a good person. Your advice, ruthless businessman advice, business monster. Exactly. No, but it's good. It's true. Good advice. Thinking about the business, understand how the business works. And that's going to lead to good design in the end. Okay, cool. That was good. Okay, we got one in the can. Let's come up to the next question. Patty, we have someone here um, also who's going to be collecting the questions that are popping up in the live stream. We're not ignoring these. Hey, Patty, maybe actually you can read out the question to us because we have a different accent. So this is from Tim Gabrielson. He says, my question is, last time you talked a bit 
about how you conduct a second follow-up sprint at AJ and Smart, as Jim's referring to the YouTube stream we did last week. And he says, however, you didn't quite finish explaining. Would you care to elaborate more about how you conduct the follow-up sprint? Yeah, my take on the second sprint is pretty simple, actually. 80 plus percent of the sprints that I've seen at the end of the week, you run that test, you find a bunch of flaws in your prototype, but you don't have to throw the prototype entirely out. Usually you say, okay, there's a bunch of stuff we need to change, extend, fix, reword, whatever, but you feel like you're getting close to product market fit with that prototype. In those scenarios, You take a couple folks the next week, you have them fix the prototype up, and then you test it again. So it's not really like a full sprint. You don't usually need to get the whole team together. Maybe get the whole team together on Monday for an hour. Just go through the prototype again, talk about your concrete plan for the week, pick a day to do your testing. Maybe you say, we're going to come back on Friday and test again. That gives people a chance to catch up with, you know, they've been away from their desks doing their job the previous week. Then you assign one or two, three people to just fix that prototype up. You don't necessarily have to do any fancy steps around this. You just fix the prototype and then you run that next test, bring the whole team back together if possible to watch that second round of testing. And then normally what I see is that teams, because they've seen the gap in the first sprint week's test, they can come back the next week and fix it and kind of turn all of those sprint questions. Usually they can get good answers that second week. So your answer is the bigger picture of it. And maybe then I'll just say the specifics of what we actually do then when the client comes back on the second week. We only have them come in on the first day. We essentially compress the Monday and Tuesday of the AJ and Smart style sprint into just the Monday. And for the AJ and Smart style sprint, we just released a video on that today. So you can find out what that is. So we actually get to the storyboard by the end of that Monday. And so we have Tuesday, Wednesday to create the prototype. So two days instead of one day. And then on Thursday, we test again. And the start of the Monday, where expert interviews usually would be in the AJ and Smart Sprint, that's where one of the facilitators shows the clients all the results of the user tests. And based on those user tests, we redo the concepts and then we go vote on them and then we do the storyboard. So at the end of the first day, we then have an updated storyboard, which is usually then an iteration on what we created in the first week. So the second week is actually quite luxurious because the designers get to polish the prototype quite a lot. Whichever prototype was chosen, whatever direction was chosen, we then get two days to work on that. And we call that the iteration sprint. All right, let's go for another question. Why did you choose these Nordic cities for the workshops? The Nordic cities thing, I think it was just we were just playing around and seeing what would happen. And I think, Jake, you wanted to go to Finland. I mean, I think the full story is a bit random, actually, that we had a friend of ours who came to one of the workshops in Berlin. He's Finnish, our buddy Tom. And he said, hey, you come to a workshop in Finland. And I was like, man, I've been to a few places. I've been to Denmark and Sweden before. I had never been to Finland. And my little son has never seen snow. So we started to think it might be kind of fun to actually go to Finland in the winter. And so that's kind of how it started out. And then we said, oh, hey, we'll be right next to these other cities. So let's do workshops there too. And We should probably be more buttoned up in our activities, but we fly by the seat of our pants. What's interesting is that when we do a workshop in Berlin or San Francisco, it sells out pretty much immediately. And I'm just going to be 100% honest. These tickets have not been flying off the shelves. I guess it was kind of now in hindsight, it was kind of maybe a mistake to do all of these Nordic cities in one go. 
But yeah, I'm still really looking forward to it. I mean, financially, maybe not the best idea because it seems like sprints are not like super well known there. But maybe after these workshops, yeah, exactly. So guys, there are still tickets for these Nordic workshops for some reason. So get your asses up there. (laughs) Okay, let's go for another question. Okay, here we go from Jose Luis Gonzalez Nunes. So I just finished the Tuesday slash Wednesday day in my first sprint was great. Wait for it. However, I felt some confusion in the team in the four-step sketches. In the idea part, could you elaborate a little more as to what should the team be doing there? Type of idea. It was probably my fault, though. Yeah, definitely your fault, Jose. Come on, man. No, but it is confusing. (laughs) Next question. Your fault. Next question. (laughs) It is a little bit confusing. I understand what he means. So the idea section, what are people actually supposed to be doing there? Yeah, I think that's a situation where we could probably, in the book, do with a little bit better articulation what that step is about. It's basically you're going from taking notes, you're copying things down off the wall. You're looking at the stuff that's in the map, stuff from the how might we's, things from your lightning demos. You're looking at those and you're just kind of copying them down. It's almost like you're copying and pasting onto your clipboard there. And this is really a way to kind of get your brain booted up for the sketching. And it's a way to help people who... I mean, I'm putting me in this boat. When you start off the sketching, it can be a bit intimidating to look at that blank sheet of paper and know you got to come up with a solution. And then you move from that. What naturally happens is you start copying things down as you start to have some ideas. So you start to have some answers to your how might we questions in mind, or you start to have some sorts of little headlines, or maybe I could lay it out like this. You're looking at the lightning demos and you're like, ah, oh, I could kind of use that pattern in this way. These things just naturally happen. Your brain starts thinking of stuff. And that's when you shift into the ideas step. So you give a few minutes of copying things down and then ideas is just like roughly, I kind of hate the word brainstorming, but it's individual brainstorming on paper. So you're just silently writing down, jotting down notes. And what I usually tell people to help them get started, if I sense that people maybe don't totally get it, is I'll say, look, you could write down how might we questions from your note taking and maybe you're just writing down answers to those, just writing down text answers. Or perhaps what you're doing is you're going to take a little like three panels, like draw three little frames and draw little thumbnail sketches. Like you're going to kind of practice a little comic strip flow for your sketch. It could be anything like that, any little drawing or writing. But once you start going on this, I think once you get people into this zone of just jot things down, the format doesn't matter. It's only for you. I've found that teams, even if they're a little confused at first, they never get it wrong. You know, they always kind of get going and get writing stuff. Okay, a bit of a follow-up question to our current topic from Farhad P. Hey, Farhad P. We know you, Farhad. We like you, Farhad. How do you usually explain the entire four-step sketching to participants in the room? Do you go over all the steps at the beginning before you go through all the individual steps? Yeah, I mean, I usually say, look, we're going to create this solution, this three-step solution at the end, you know, and talk about what that's going to look like a little bit, just a little bit. But mostly I say, don't worry a whole lot about it. It's going to seem totally natural by the time we get there. We're going to do this four-step process. And the four steps are the steps that I know as a designer, I should use if I'm coming up with a solution for something. I should kind of consider all of the background details. That's the notes step. I should consider multiple approaches. That's the ideas step. I should then really consider specific variations of the idea I'm planning to implement. That's crazy eights. 
And then I should start on paper before I go to a digital tool. And that's the sketch at the end. I also will tell people, you don't have to tell them all that about the design process, but sometimes I like to share that with people. The big thing that I like to tell folks when we're about to start is these four steps, they're going to get you there. Don't worry. You're going to end up with a solution sketch. It's not going to seem too hard by the time we get there because all of these things are going to build on one another. The big thing you need to know is the first three steps they're private. They're just for you. Nobody's going to look at them. You don't have to share them. They don't have to make sense. They don't have to be legible. It doesn't matter. The fourth one, everyone's going to look at. They're going to judge you based on this. You know, they're going to judge your intelligence and everything based on that. I mean, not really, but dumbass. But the fourth one they're going to look at, but steps one, two, and three, they're just for you. They're warm up. And that usually I think helps people be more comfortable with it. So you can give, I'd say a pretty minimal overview in the beginning. Just give people that confidence, especially if you yourself have been in a sprint before that, hey, it's going to work. Like by the time we get through all four, it's going to work. And if you've never been in one before, you can say, Jake promised, John promised it's going to work by the time we get through all four. But don't stress, especially about these first three, because they're just private. And just remember in your head that this whole idea of putting pen to paper sketching a solution is uncomfortable for many folks. A lot of people on your team will probably not feel super psyched about doing that right off the bat. So you kind of want to be encouraging and a little bit like, hey, don't worry about it. And that's kind of my tone with describing it. I like your tone, Jake. It's a good tone. Thank you. It's a very good tone. Okay, so a question from Alex Masleev. Masleev. Hey, Alex. Any tips on how to run design sprints for enterprise products? Even from the prototyping point of view, it is a little bit different from creating a landing page or some simple mobile app prototype. And there's a follow-up question specifically about prototyping that it seems like one day is not enough for prototyping an enterprise product. Well, I don't agree. I mean, I think... Oh! (laughs) Alex got savaged! (laughs) (laughs) He may know more than I do, probably does, because he's actually working on the product. And it may be that it's super complicated, but I remember having this experience like early in my career at Google, I was going to be managing this team. And it was a team where the designers worked on all different kinds of products. Some designers worked on ads, some worked on like Google Photos, some worked on Gmail, some worked on Maps. And I remember thinking like Maps is really complicated. Like there's all this to know about how Google Maps works. And I remember talking to the design director of the Maps team, this woman named Margaret Lee, who's super awesome. Anyways, I was saying, Margaret, like, I don't know if I can really be helpful. I don't even know if I can understand what's going on with the design work on Maps. And she was like, it's just a product. It's just like design work. Yeah, the content might be complicated, but like fundamentally, everything is the same. Chill out. She probably doesn't remember saying that. It was probably no big deal to her. But that idea that like everything is like, it's just design. It's fundamentally just problem solving. Like it's all the same thing really stuck with me. And it gave me a lot of confidence as I started doing design sprints at Google at the startups with Google Ventures, it's just like anything you go into, it's fundamentally problem solving. And it actually can fit into the same sort of problem solving recipe, which is what the design sprint is. So I would challenge you. I'd say like, hey, sure, the customers for your product may be super expert. They may be have all of these expectations. They may be using data sets that are really complicated, all these things. But fundamentally, it's still a problem solving thing. And you can still build a prototype of something. You're going to have to have maybe more context and expertise. Sure. I mean, maybe that's true. There's going to maybe need to be people on your team, at least who can tell you what kind of content to put in to make it realistic. But it's all more or less the same. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that to add something to that, Alex, I think it's also important to make sure that in the first day, you really decide on a scope of work that actually makes sense and that's doable for the prototype. 
I think that at least from my experience, when we're working on enterprise products, when it gets difficult is because we bite off more than we can chew, right? We try to do everything. But the sprint is about solving like one really big problem, right? It might be the onboarding. It might be something specific on the dashboard. Don't try to do the entire product in the sprint. It needs to be scoped down to a specific problem. And maybe your problem that you're coming up against, you're coming up against it because you're like, okay, we need to do this entire new enterprise medical data center in one week. That's also just impossible, right? It's not scoped. It's not clear enough. So it does have to be kind of clearly scoped out before you get into the prototyping day. Last week and the week before, we were working with a section of the government and it was a pure enterprise project. And yeah, it was really fine to work on that because we were able to scope it down into something very specific, the most important problem. That would be, I guess, my little nugget towards that. How's the nugget? That was a good nug. Thanks for the nug. Um, okay, Matt. I think this is a great question, by the way, Matt, and it's a huge deal. How important is upfront research for the sprint in general? And then how important is doing some research for the prototype? All right, let's go wild dogging. What do you think? <laughs> well, yeah, we've talked about this a bit before. I think that upfront research is great if you can get it and you can get it delivered into the sprint in a way that is credible, that is digestible, that's easy for people to understand. And I give all those caveats because sometimes a research project turns into this big, big thing. And sometimes on some teams, they don't believe in research, you know, for whatever reason, the research team or some outside research or whatever may not be credible to them, or the team is just They've never seen it have an effect before. Whatever the reason might be, you know what I'm talking about if you're on a team where this is the case. And if you're on such a team, don't kill yourself trying to get research in ahead of time. The design sprint is a Trojan horse for research that the team will believe. But if you do have research that the team is likely to absorb and believe in, even just some people on the team, oh, it's great. It can be like almost as if you were already on your second sprint if you start with good research. So if you felt like you had the extra time, I would say by all means do a research sprint. You can search for research sprint. There's a series of blog posts by my colleague, Michael Margolis. If you have the sprint book, you can basically just run Friday with you know your existing product or with competitors' products, just running those interviews. You can do that ahead of time and it's going to give you a big boost, but you don't have to do that to get good results. If you start cold on day one of your sprint, you will end up getting research by the end of a week and that's pretty fast. Yeah. And I think that regarding the prototype, so number one, what we've started to do now at AJ and Smart is that on the Friday before the sprint, we try to take a shot at what could be the, what could the map look like? What could be the lightning demos that we could present to the client? Because that's something that always gets the juices flowing. And so we do some research into other products that might be interesting for the sprint that's coming up. And we do try to make a kind of guess at what the potential or target customers should be or could be. So we're not doing personas or anything like that. But what we're looking for is that the Monday of the sprint from expert interviews, map, long-term goal and questions and lightning demos, we already have some hints at what those might be so that it's not starting so extremely cold. But in general, we're kind of not really super excited about long research projects, which we used to do before, but we've just completely pulled out of. But yeah, a little bit of research up front. And definitely with every member of the team having a few 
lightning demos already in their minds is always a great way just to get things kind of rolling, I think. But also I'd say just a reminder, if you are doing looking at doing your first sprint on your team, you're trying to get your team on board with doing it. It's a big commitment already to take five days to do something. You can show up on Monday. Having done no prep except getting the right people in the room and having the right snacks and the right supplies and lining up the folks who you need to talk to on Monday, you will have right. a good sprint. And that was the secret recipe for me was I could show up in a startup on Monday morning, not have context, in many cases, not having researched before. And I knew that we would get through it all right. By the end of the week, the team would be sold on the importance of research, even if they had never done it before, even if they didn't have a researcher on the team or you know whatever. It is self-contained. So don't start to add other stuff around it if it's cumbersome for you. You know, when you're talking to me about what we did at GV when we were able to do research before, we had like a world-class amazing researcher on our team who could do that stuff and could convince people when he talked about it, he was great at presenting it. You talk to Jonathan about what's going on with AJ and Smart. Now they've got a team running sprints all the time. People are hiring them to come in. So of course you can make it better by doing these other things, but don't feel like you got to sell your team on like a two or three week or like six week long process. It can just be the week and it'll still be good. Yeah. Remember, user research is overrated, my friends. <laughs> All right, let's go. We've got so many questions for you. Um, we'll just stop taking questions at 7.30. How's that? I don't know. I mean, 7.30 for me would be a long time from now. That's what I'm talking about, like eight hours. <laughs> <laughs> eight hours, sure. What do you think is the longest podcast episode on the iTunes store? I mean, like not just our podcast. I mean, all podcasts. The um, Hardcore History podcast, some of the episodes are five hours long. Okay, but I mean... That's a lot. I wouldn't want to do that myself. But like, could you go longer? I have a question to our listeners. Should our podcast be even longer than it is already? <laughs> yes yeah. or no? Hour, no? The thing that people tell me obviously is like, oh, it's a little bit too long. And I'm like, yeah, but you know, it's also easier for us to make if it's longer. <laughs> hey, okay. Let's go for a question from Rob Huff. You would pronounce it like H-U-F-F. Okay, Rob. Rob asks... Are design sprints as effective for working on branding in your experience? I actually wrote a post about a specific process that we used to use for branding. So what? It's called the three-hour brand sprint. Yeah. That is my starting point for brand help. And that's also kind of the ending point. I don't know a lot about brand. I wouldn't try to tell you like I know much about it. In fact, if you read that post, you'll see it is sort of what I learned from working with some people who were really good at brand. A couple of my colleagues at Google Ventures, Lara Milan and Daniel Burka, great at brand, would connect our startups often with other agencies who are great at brand. And we ended up putting together some exercises to help a team basically get started on their brand so that whether they did it themselves from there or whether they hired an agency, they would be very well prepared on knowing like what they were all about. That is not a normal design sprint process. It's a recipe, but it's very different from what you do in a design sprint. You could use a design sprint, I suppose, to try out like implementing your brand, but it's not something I have much experience with. As for a service, I mean, yeah, sure. Like lots of products, lots of businesses, are they are in the form of a service. You absolutely can run a sprint to test a service. And I don't think you have to do any backflips to try to figure out how the process applies to a service. But with branding, it's a little bit of a different animal. Yeah. Actually, Jake, at the workshop we're going to be doing with you next week, we're going to be bringing one of our first physical products with us. And this also involved branding. And for this, we used the normal standard design sprint process. The first week, we actually 
did like standard design sprint process, but for the concept section and lightning demos section, we made it last much longer than usual so that we could get into a more inspirational mode. But we chose the branding based on those sprints for this like physical product we'll show you next week. And the other thing is like what actually is interesting to me, Jake, is that I don't think you have a lot of design agency experience. Am I right? Yeah, none, pretty much. No. Like, I think that's actually a good thing. And I'm the same. I've actually never worked in a design agency besides the one I started. And I honestly think that's for the better. I mean, that sounds really arrogant. I know that sounds extremely arrogant. But a lot of processes that are created in design agencies that people don't question are created so that you can charge as much as possible. And I know this because I work with design agencies and they tell me this kind of thing. And we used to also do it at AJ and Smart. Like, I wonder how we can spread this project out over eight months. Well, here's how we could do it. And I think if you had worked in design agencies, I don't think you would ever have written something like Sprint because you would have already been like absorbed into the types of systems that they use. So don't underestimate the fact that you might actually have a system that's better for making brands for branding than design agencies do. That's a very cynical view on design agencies. I love design agencies. Well, yeah, I mean, you're right that there is a challenge with the incentives. The incentive is you're going to make more money probably with a bigger and longer project as an agency. But in my experience working with folks who are at agencies, they're not like trying to rip people off. The processes that they do are not malevolent. There is something to be said about being in a situation where you're in a startup, you're in a very small company, a very small team, you're resource constrained and you have to figure out what is the fastest, scrappiest way we can get to this. What is the smallest set of things that we can do to get good results? And the thing that's really different about a brand from normally designing a product is that a lot of what's in a brand is about what you believe the product needs to be why you're in business in the first place that manifests itself as a logo as a visual set of things as a voice the way you write copy and that why that sort of spirit behind the product is something that the design sprint itself is not normally geared towards doing but the best brands have it they have that why behind them and so unless you specifically engineer something in which is what the three-hour brand sprint is meant to do to get at that why and figure out how that's going to express itself into the product you're missing a huge thing you would only be building the surface the facade which is what i normally say that's great build the facade of your product but when it comes to the brand that's not quite right the other thing is that a brand i think i'm sure you could get interesting you know, you'd learn something by testing your brand with people on Friday, but I would be more skeptical of the results of that kind of a test for a brand yeah. than I would for, does this product fit? You know, just knowing myself and like the way some things have to really settle with me before I, I like them. It would be hard to say from a snap decision on Friday with a brand if I would feel good about it. So I don't know. I don't totally agree with your take. I think you can definitely get away with doing less. You know, it doesn't have to be a, a big, giant, multi-week, multi-month process. All right, Jake. Chill, man. All right, let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've ever asked you point blank. And I think the reason you don't want to answer is because you're best buddies with Tim Brown. But um, <laughs> oh, yeah. what's like your straight up opinion on design thinking? Just talk about it for a sec. Well, if you want to know like why there's a design sprint, it's because there's design thinking. There's this thing that's a really cool idea that I read about, heard about people were doing like, oh man, you start by thinking about the people who are going to use this thing and what they need and like how this is going to fit in their life. You 
come up with a bunch of ideas, you narrow those down, you build a prototype, you test it, like all that stuff is design thinking. Design thinking as a philosophy is excellent. Some people, like IDEO, they apply it in a great way. They know how to do it. Design thinking, by and large, most of the time when you hear design thinking, most of the time when a team, a company is doing it, it's a waste of time. It undermines design. You know, people start to think like design, it's hand wavy. It's like, what's going on with all these yeah. sticky notes? Like it's, there's a lot of fluff out there and it's not ill-intended. I myself was often trying to apply this really good philosophy, but couldn't figure out how to actually make it stick and make it work. Yeah, it's make hard. it seem credible to engineers. How do you get from point A to like a product that's not easy? And so when somebody says we're doing design thinking already, I always kind of am a little nervous because I think you probably already have formed an opinion that this is what design is. And yet design thinking takes so many different forms that it's like, well, what you're doing, it might not be what I would consider to be like actual good product work. What you're doing might possibly have poisoned your team's opinion on mm. what design is. So it's a double-edged sword. It's a really valuable philosophy if applied properly, super powerful. And like most things, you know, if applied in sort of a half-assed way, it could be actually dangerous. So D asks, how do you actually convince people to just try the sprint? How do you show how valuable those days will be in the long run? Ooh, that's a nice... Uh... <laughs> okay. I mean, I just beg. I'm just like, will you please let us run a design sprint? It'll be so fun. When I was starting off doing design sprints so nobody knew what it was, I just focused on the value of the prototype. In one week, we can make a prototype. We get the team together. If there's people from different organizations, if it's a big company and they need to agree on the thing we're going to do, let's get them all in the room and we'll get them all to kind of work together. I will get everybody through this process. And at the end of the week, we'll have a prototype for you. And the idea of a prototype is usually pretty exciting to people. The idea of like a test with customers is not always like the big carrot, the big shiny, juicy carrot at the end. Juicy carrot? Yeah. What kind of carrots do you guys have over there in uh, Germany? <laughs> definitely I mean, not probably, juicy, dude. I don't know what you're talking about. This episode should be called The Big Juicy Carrot. Okay. That may be the podcast. So, the podcast. <laughs> the, yeah. So, I mean, like the prototype is a thing that you're like, oh, cool. We got to the prototype really fast. If we got a prototype in one week and we had a structure where we could bring in like that jerk from design and that jerk from engineer. You know, if you have people on your team and you're like, it's going to be a little difficult to organize everybody. Yeah. Hey, this process will get everybody on the same page and it'll get us a prototype at the end of the week. I think that's a really compelling selling point fundamentally. And then you could build from there. Like if you're a design agency, you can say, hey, you don't have to write up any kind of documentation ahead of time. You just show up. We'll do it. I know you guys use that approach. There are other things that are good about it, like the sprint, obviously. But I think that the one that is the most readily valuable usually to a big company is like just the speed to get to a prototype and all of the other goodness, you know, people will get it once they've done it. But oftentimes I think it's that speed to prototype. What do you think, John? Uh, I'm selling the design sprint quite often. So that's kind of like my angle is how do I convince a company to then, you know, start using the sprint also so that we can do some sprints for them. And usually it's about the decision making. I explain the opportunity cost of not doing a sprint. And the opportunity cost of not doing a sprint is going in circles, trying to discuss things and trying to figure things out for months, which can actually all be figured out within one week. And it's just these one-off meetings, the emails back and forth, the Slack messages, the misinterpretations, the misalignment. This doesn't need to happen. 
This is 100% solved by a sprint. So especially for the kickoff of a project, I explain to them, here's how it could go if you do it the way you do it right now. And I explain it and they're nodding. They're like, yes, it always happens like this. And then I say, the sprint gets rid of that. And then usually what I do is I do the lightning decision jam exercise for them. And I have them solve some problems that they've been going around in circles with for a while. So lightning decision jam, you can find the video for that here on YouTube as well. And this is the thing that I do very often. I'm traveling around doing this exercise for companies just to show them the benefit of making decisions fast without having to discuss everything. This together alone principle that you have in the book. And it's super effective, super effective to show people extremely fast results, even faster than the sprint. It only takes about an hour. And yeah, those are probably the two angles I take. Opportunity cost from the normal way to the sprint way, and then the lightning decision jam. And then if they're still not convinced, I send them to sprintstories.com. I show them a couple of case studies on there. Are there any in particular that you really liked on there? The one about Facebook doing oh, yeah. the design sprint? Yeah. I show them our UN one, actually. Yeah, that's a good one. Those are two good ones. I flick through it based on the client, right? I try to find something similar to what they've done. And obviously, at this point, I show them other clients we've worked with where their products are on the market right now, but we use the sprint process, but we could have used a longer running process. Okay, I think that answers the question. Let's move on. All right, Gregory, you're my man. You get my jokes. You get the design thinking. What's the difference between running a design sprint in the US and Europe? Is there a cultural difference? Not really. I mean, I can only tell you that it's surprisingly similar to run a design sprint here in Berlin with an old German company and a design sprint in Silicon Valley with a super like famous Silicon Valley company. It's super similar. The same problems come up, the same resistance is there, and the same execution problems that are like a big problem in the industry are there. So not a huge difference, except for the fact that they don't like you to swear in the US. So if I come in there and say, hey, you fucking cunts, how's it going? <laughs> they love that here, but in the US, they don't like that. They run pretty much the same. Farhad asks, how would you handle a team that comes in with an already established idea of what they want to do, and they keep steering it in that way, but your gut and experience tells you that it's wrong? We've both had this, I'm assuming. When you're facilitating or if you're on a team, you can sketch your solution and you can make a case for your solution at the end of the decision-making process. If you've seen all the other solutions and you guys have done the straw poll vote, you say, hey, like, I think mine's the best. You guys are nuts. <laughs> you want them to download an app? You think this is 2001? Like, come on. And if the decider doesn't choose your solution, then what's going to happen is you're going to build a prototype of the app download thing. And then you're going to watch the results of the test. And you're going to see if you set the test up well and you, you know, ideally you would be able to get people to head to head test the web sign in versus the download. If you could do that, that would be ideal to have them tested head to head so that the team can see which one performs better. If you can't, you know, sometimes people are going to go ahead and do what they're going to do. And the sprint at least gets there a lot faster. They were otherwise going to commit and just build and launch it. So there's a chance that they'll be convinced by what happens in the test that it's a bad idea. There is also a chance that you are 100% convinced that what the decider wants to do or what the team wants to do is dumb. It's actually not dumb. And you're the one who's wrong. I have been the person who's wrong quite often in sprints. And I thought, they're nuts. This will never work. And then the sprint happens and you see the results. You're like, actually... The decider or the whole team, they knew what they were doing. That, that can happen too. So you should go into it, be humble, present your idea, but don't assume that you know best until you've seen the test. Yeah. 
we've run well over like 180 sprints now at this point. And of course, clients come in and they're like, well, I already know what the solution is. This is more about the execution. We just want the prototype. And we still convince them. We say, look, you're after paying for the time. Let's just use it. Let's actually just go through the sprint. Just trust it. And even if they're really pushing against us and they're like, no, 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 no. I already know. I get it. Okay. I'm just like humoring you so that we actually get through it. Always on the second day, always once the concepts are revealed, they're like, oh, wow. Oh, that's interesting. So for me, every single sprint I've ever done, which started with people already having big solutions in their mind, they've changed their mind once they've seen the other solutions. So I think you should just go with it and just be like, yeah, yeah, I mean, if it is that the solution, no problem. But then just see how they react once they actually see the solutions of everybody. You'll be surprised. They change their mind. Yeah, the sprint is a great vehicle for disagreement in a constructive way and for yeah. opening people's minds in a constructive way without having that like head to head, like I'm going to battle you out. I'm going to try to convince you. Jonathan's right. The structure will often just open their minds along the way. And if it doesn't at the end, the test will hopefully make one, either you or them see the light. Yeah. All right, Jake, here's what's up, man. Pedro Gomez, he's asking... What are the three biggest and most common barriers you face from clients in the design sprint process? Oh. Not wanting to be there in person. That's one of the biggest ones. They don't see the benefit of physically being there. That's one that we come up against all the time. Yeah, people don't want to be in the sprint. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, I got to be at the situation where we had the luxury of saying like, look, if you're not going to show up, we're not going to do the sprint. So do a sprint mm. with somebody else. I don't really think about it like that, I guess. I suppose it's because I think about what my job is, what the design sprint does, all that stuff is about, it's just about like trying to help people. It's about like trying to help them do what they want to do. It's a way to speed up and get people in a good structure for accomplishing what they want to accomplish. I have not felt it's like an adversarial thing. If somebody doesn't want yeah. it, then it just, okay, you don't want it. Fine. Like maybe yeah. there'll be another time when you'll want it, or maybe I'll just go work with somebody else or time may not be right, whatever, but I don't ever want to fight somebody with it. And so to me, a barrier just means like, Okay, like just do something else. Like it should be seen as helpful. And that's the mode I want to be in. I don't want to be like working super hard to convince somebody. It sounds like you're playing hard to get, Jake. It yeah, sounds like you're uh, playing the game. Right. What do you think? <laughs> One big barrier uh, that you need to overcome when you're in the sprint, when they've already decided to be there, is that they don't really trust that it's going to work because, for example, they think that we're not capturing every idea because it's so fast. This is a really big thing that they complain about. Usually at the start, it's like, we're not capturing everything. We're moving so fast that we're losing things. And we tell them upfront before we even start that it's going to feel like that, that it's going to feel like we're skipping over things. It's going to feel like we're almost like bulldozing through. But remember, this is about getting started. This is about creating the momentum and getting some data. It's not about creating the perfect thing because there is no perfect thing. And that would be one of the biggest blockers we have is, for example, when we're doing the map and we're like, okay, now we're just going to move on. And they're like, no, but it wasn't finished. And we're like, there is no finished. It's just about getting something so this perfection thing, they want this perfection, not that they had it before, but they had more time before they had like eight months to do what we're now doing in one week, right? A lot of the companies we work with would have spent a year doing what we do in one week. I'm not joking. I spent a year doing exactly what we do in one week now because I thought you needed a year because other design agencies told me I needed a year to do it. So I took a year. So now it's a pretty big shock to the system when you're moving that fast and you're not really certain. You were never certain before when it took a year, but at least you took a year. So you could say, <laughs> yeah, well, it took a year. So it's kind of realistic. So the biggest blocker um, that we come across is that feeling. 
especially when designers join the sprint, that it's all moving too fast. And there's no way that this is going to turn out well. I think that's a good answer. Okay, great. Okay, great. Okay, I love this uh, comment here from Jose. He was the one who asked about the cultural differences, and he's getting a little bit more specific here. (laughs) And he says, here in Mexico, the people arrive super late. You know what, man? We're doing design sprints here in Germany, right? They are never late. When I came to the US, and we did design sprints with like three companies the last time we were there, they were always late. Yeah. And they, whenever they went out for lunch, they would just never come back. We'd have to like find them and round them up. And we're like, you're paying for this. What are you doing? They're like, ah, I have to have another coffee. I don't know what's going on over there in the US and Silicon Valley where they're all working like 80 hours a day or something. But they're just late. I'm late. I mean, you know, we never start the yeah, podcast you're always on time because I'm late. Jesus. And that's an ongoing theme of my life. I'm late to everything. I, I think there is more lateness in the US. You just kind of like build it into your schedule. We would tell people, oh, we're starting at 9.30. And then yeah. like, we would know we're not really going to start till 10.30. Like, it's fine if people are showing up and like getting a coffee and going like doing whatever they got to do. Like, have your own schedule that starts later. No, we do that as well. When, when we put on a workshop, I have my spreadsheet for the schedule of a workshop. And I know like it's not going to start the time it starts. It's going to start a little later. So yeah. that's one thing is just to like lie about the start time, basically be there, but just know that people are going to kind of roll in at their own time. And then for lunch, you can have lunch delivered if you can. If yeah, you can't have that. lunch like yeah. there so that people don't go out and I actually did like a workshop with a company recently and they shocked me by coming back. We were going out for lunch and I was like, that's an hour and a half. There's no way we're going to get people back in less than an hour and a half. And I told everybody be back in 40 minutes, but I had budgeted an hour and a half and they came back in 40 minutes and I was like, I got to just like burn time now with the Tone it down, man. Tone it down. Relax. But normally, yeah, if you could get food delivered or else again, just budget like a lot of extra time, but tell people they need to be back way sooner. That's been my approach. Jake. Let's say today you're a 21-year-old designer just starting out in your career. What would you tell little baby Jake <laughs> now that you know all the stuff you know? What would you tell little baby Jake to get to a point of, let's say, you know, getting to the top of the career ladder as fast as possible or maybe like getting to financial freedom or I don't know, you'd already given him all the life advice stuff and now it's just career advice. I think that the things that ended up in the long term helping me the most were learning how to present and tell the story of the product I was working on, learning how to eventually, you know, working on writing, which is again, telling the story of what's going on, but thinking about the process. The advice I would give myself, literally knowing myself now is like, hey, you're really into process. For you, the pinnacle of your career is not going to be being like the very best designer. It's not going to be being like the chief design officer at like a super fancy company. That's not actually where your strongest skills lie. Like embrace the fact that you love the process and go way into that. The other thing I would have told myself is you don't need to spend so long working on the same thing. I spent a long time working at Microsoft on Microsoft and Carta. I would have benefited probably from getting some more experience early on. Maybe, although, you know, at the same time, like you have a depth of experience about product because I saw the same product go through the product cycle so many times. And part of that ended up sort of helping me out. But I think the biggest things would be, for me, focus on the process. It's okay to have your interests that are not about design. I felt a lot of pressure to be designery. I think everybody who's in Mm. design will know what I'm talking about. Like there's a designery, like people who are into design with a capital D and they care about graphic design. They care about things that are designed well. There's like a right way to do it. They know what they're talking about. 
I hadn't been to design school. I felt like a chip on my shoulder that I didn't know that stuff. And if I had felt maybe the confidence that, hey, I'm actually going to be better off taking a few different skills and mixing them together and then following what's my big interest, which is how things work and helping people like actually get things done. I think that's good advice, though. I mean, it's not very actionable, though, you know, it's not really going to... Not really going to help little Jake. He's just going to be like, yeah, so what do I actually do? Okay, you're going to hold my feet to the fire here. What should I do? The thing that's weird about my career, maybe it's just me, but I, I suspect it's true for a lot of people. It's very hard to predict what is going to happen. If I had tried to set a path for myself, there's no way I would have predicted like what I ended up doing. There's no way I would have predicted going to Google and then getting into teaching brainstorm workshops, like basically design thinking workshops, and then doing design sprints, and then leaving Google to go work at Google Ventures, and then writing a book about that. I wouldn't have known how to plot that out and make it happen faster. I think there's a lot of things that would seem like they were shortcuts to that end destination. If you assume I was trying to tell 21-year-old Jake how to get to be 40-year-old Jake, (laughs) the shortcuts might have been self-destructive. Like the shortcut of, Uh, you talk about this too, and you mean, I think you practice this. Like you talk about the Gary Vee thing, like- Documents don't create. Document don't create. If I had followed that advice as a 21-year-old, I think that would have been destructive for me. I mean, there wasn't really social media then, so I don't know where I would have been documenting. I guess I could have had a blog. It wouldn't have been bad if it was a blog, but I think that blogging week after week after week as a 21-year-old, my brain was not fully formed. I didn't have good understanding of what was going on. I wouldn't have been writing articulate stuff. And I think maybe it would have helped me. Maybe it would have built that writing muscle faster. But I had to carefully balance pretty quickly because I had the first kid at 25. So I had to very carefully balance my time between work and home and I don't know that pouring energy into sharing stuff when I didn't have anything to say would have helped me or would have actually like maybe slowed me down. So I think there's a danger in saying like, oh, as a 40-year-old, how I spend my time is X, Y, Z. You should start doing that sooner. I wish I had started writing a little sooner, but I think I would have done it as I did it in my real life privately. I started just writing on a novel in my spare time. I would have started doing that sooner. Sure, that would have helped. I would have started working on my presentation skills a little sooner. I didn't have to do that until I got to Google. And maybe I could have done more of that at Microsoft. But, you know, I don't know. I'm not sure that that stuff would have been... To some degree, it's okay to like learn what comes to you and take advantage of what comes to you. And in the early 2000s, the design market, the tech market is not what it was today. It was okay to actually just kind of basically go to school at Microsoft and learn from people. And sometimes you'll find yourself in in that era in who you are at that time, where your development of your sort of personal view on the world is, is still solidifying and coming together. It's okay to not be in a rush to get somewhere. It's okay to not be doing the perfect thing, to not be tweeting and Instagramming and blogging and like making a name for yourself because you need to form your thoughts first. Otherwise, it's just noise. There's so much noise out there already of people sharing stuff. And I think it's okay to not do that fast. As soon as YouTube and Instagram started existing, it wouldn't have been the worst idea to start like vlogging. Because if I think of like the last seven years of growing this company, I think that would be interesting for people to see going through all the crappy times, going through the times where it was just like one person moving office, all of this kind of stuff building up to today. Not that I'm regretting that I didn't do it. I just think that today I would have a much bigger audience, like I would have a lot more leverage that I could use to do other things. I don't in any way regret it. It was more like, well, if I could go back in time, I would probably just tell him like, dude, you see this app Instagram? 
get that shit every day, start doing the stories. And you see this YouTube thing, just start putting videos there once a week. But you're talking about you. Sure, it would have been great. Like part of the reason why you'd say like, oh, the people who like Gary Vee, right? He, he was right on the YouTube thing, right? He was doing it right out of the gate. Nobody was doing it. If you look at the people who were doing that, they were building an audience partly because they saw something. They saw an opportunity that most other people didn't see yet. And so they got a head start. They were first movers in like a new opportunity, a new space. That's not what it is today to go onto Instagram or to go onto YouTube. It's not a new space. It's easier for you to build an audience today. You can do that relatively quickly because you already have clients. You already, I don't know if you have interesting things to say, but maybe let's give you some uh, slack there and say you do. You don't need to have interesting things to say. That's the problem. People tell you you need to have interesting things to say, but you don't. Dude, if you saw my Instagram stories during the day, it's just like, here's what's up right now. It's interesting sometimes. Like I watch people who are kind of at a point in their career that I want to be or in a similar point in the career. And I'm like, that's how they like optimize this part of their lives. Or they're just sitting around playing video games. That's great. That makes me not feel so bad about it. This is probably something that we're not going to come to an agreement on because I think it's a very good idea. It depends what you want, right? You've created a New York Times bestselling book. You had a nice kind of lighthouse that created an audience for you. And your next book, I think, is going to do the same and so on. But if I was you, and we have totally different personalities, you don't want to be distracted all the time. But I would be vlogging the shit out of it. And you could obviously, your personal brand could be super strong. But that's not something that you're super interested in being distracted all the time. And that's fair enough. Are you saying my personal brand is not super strong, John? You're dissing my brand? It could be huge. If you were doing a weekly vlog on YouTube and uh, daily stories on Instagram, dude, you would already have a huge brand within six months and you would be able to leverage that for other things. You would get more book sales. But those things are not free. Those things have a cost. Yes, exactly. That's a cost you don't like. I don't know what it's like to post an Instagram story because I'm not on Instagram. But anytime you, I write a blog post, there's a crater around doing it right now. I published a blog post yesterday and so I spent... This was not a Jason Freed speed blog post. <laughs> it took me more than 15 minutes. I was trying to answer a question somebody sent me about facilitation tips. Oh, that was a great article, by the way. Really great. I wrote up a bunch of tips. And then once I started doing it, I would walk away from it and I'd have more ideas. And I wrote in more and, and I ended up spending several hours putting that thing together. And then I publish it. And then when I publish it, I'm like looking at the stats and now I better send a newsletter about it. So I send a newsletter about it. I do the things you should do when you promote something. All of that stuff has a huge cost because my top priorities right now are to get the new book totally polished. I want it to be super high quality and get out the door. And I want the interior design to be beautiful. I want the cover to be beautiful, everything. And I want to start this new book. I got this new book going on. That takes huge amounts of time. And I need like a lot of space to get into that zone. And, you know, I want to do a good job with these workshops. I want to like make the next workshop that we do together better than the last one. Those things for me take a lot of headspace and time. And if I'm yeah. even like one post per week, to me, is like, mm -hmm. I got to be really careful about that. It does have a cost. That cost for you, it may be worth it. But if you make the choice to broadcast a lot, you are sacrificing some amount of that deeper work for shallower work. Whenever you put something out in the world, 
you're going to spend some amount of time tending it, replying to comments about it, even just being aware of it in your mind. And the more you do it, the less, I think, mental space it takes up, but it still takes up space. It takes up time and mental energy. And that comes at some kind of a cost. And for me, like my greater strength is it making things that take a little bit more time. And the challenge is that you're really good at the public persona stuff, at the personal brand stuff. Oh, thanks, Jake. Your personal brand, I have no doubt if it hasn't already eclipsed my brand. Listen, my personal brand is a bit weak at the moment, but this time next year, you're going to be crawling around trying to talk to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the problem is that people who are really visible, they're visible. So there's a selection bias. The people who we all see are the people who are talking at us all the time. And that doesn't mean those are the only valuable people in the world. So you got to also, if my personal brand, if the stuff I was sharing was because I felt like I got to share something all the time, that's not really me. The stuff that I share now, you'll know that I felt like I really felt for some reason I ought to write that thing. So or I really felt I ought to post that thing or whatever. So you'll know it's coming from me. That is what it is. We're not all going to be internet superstars. That's your problem. <laughs> I mean, that's your problem, dude. Iker Oritz Diari, he said, Jake is wise. What about Jonathan? Yes. See that? What about Jonathan as personal brand? Um, <laughs> he logged off. Yeah, Iker <laughs> just logged off. <laughs> Jake, I got one for you. Jose, I hope I said your name in the sexy voice that you probably have. How would you go, so from like a normal job, let's say, I guess he's trying to say, to a job at Google, Facebook, Microsoft, or AJ and Smart, winky face, and surround yourself with better people, more experts? This is a tough, tough question for many reasons. One reason is literally, if you're coming from Mexico and you want to get a job in the United States, our visa system is like a huge deal, a huge obstacle to coming to work in the United States. I wouldn't know how to tell you how to navigate it. I know that Google, Facebook, those companies, they're as good as they can be at helping people get visas, but it's still super challenging. So that's obstacle one. That's not fair. There's no good like way to, to get around that. The next thing is going to be, okay, you're coming from anywhere. It doesn't matter where you're coming from, but if you want to get a job at a company that you admire, how do you get their attention? How do you get on their radar? And One obstacle for me in answering this question has been a long time since I was in that situation. I would best compare it to when I came to Google in 2000. I was applying to Google in 2006, actually originally probably in 2005. And I worked at Microsoft at that time. Now, I know it may sound from the outside, like, I mean, because Microsoft is a, a known company that coming from Microsoft would be a big advantage coming to Google. And it, you know, it wasn't terrible, but Google's opinion of Microsoft, at least at that time, was not super favorable. So I don't think that helped a lot. But I actually even had a connection at Google. I had a friend who was working as a recruiter. I got to talk to somebody, a recruiter at Google, and I was like, hey, look, you know, I put together a portfolio like, hey, I'm be interested in talking to you guys. They were not interested in me. And so I was like, okay, I got to like boost up my technical chops because at that time, Google only hired people who were super technical, even for design roles. So I like studied up on JavaScript and, you know, just in my free time was, I didn't really have free time, but I made time to try to learn, you know, kind of boost up my coding skills a little bit. I had some, but to try to get a little bit sharper at it and just to try to better understand web technologies. I worked at it a bit, but honestly, like I personally, not technical enough to get super far, just kind of tinkering around reading a book. So Anyway, I reapply again a year later. And this time, though, I've put a lot more work into my portfolio. And I have a really good story around this project that I've worked at, which 
to Google is not going to seem like a really exciting project because it's Microsoft Encarta Encyclopedia. It's like a CD-ROM piece of software. It's not an exciting web tech kind of product from Google. I also read blogs by folks who were designers at Google who I tracked down and I read some posts by them. Like I felt like, okay, maybe I kind of have some kind of a sense of how they talk about products and maybe I can do it. And I just thought the biggest thing I can do is tell the story of what I've done as well as I can, kind of just convey my enthusiasm for doing this kind of work. And I talked to somebody on the phone and I told, you know, what I'd been working on and why I was excited about Google. And I think that conversation is what got me in the door, not what was on my resume, but being able to articulate what was going on and how I thought about products and to tell the story of one product really well. Here's what we tried to do. Here's what didn't work. Here's how we got there, you know. And then when I got into the interview, that was the same thing. It was like telling that story. We start off with a portfolio review, just trying to like bring energy and be enthusiastic. And all I know to tell you, like if I was trying to prepare is I would try to prepare stories. I would just try to think about how to tell the story of something and tell the story of your work. But I got to be honest, like that worked in 2007, somebody coming from Microsoft going to Google and I don't know how Google is looking for people now or Facebook is looking for people now. I know that like that bar of like you have to be a computer science major is not there anymore. But I don't know what else is there. I don't know how you kind of break the ice. So while you were talking there, I just wanted to go boring. But you know what I'm after realizing? And, and Dee in our office just told me apparently my irony sometimes doesn't come across in the podcast. We were talking about, I don't know, a few episodes back, you were saying how great the episode with Jason Fried was. And I was like, no, it sucked. But people don't see my face that I'm just like clearly joking. So I won't say your answer was boring, but it definitely was. Okay, so <laughs> that was a joke, everybody. All right, so this is just my way of doing it. It doesn't mean it's the right way of doing it. So number one, if you want to make it easy for yourself, unfortunately, geography is important. It's making it much harder for yourself not being in the place where you want to work. So if I would want to work at Google, or if I would want to like have connections at Google, which is something I actually did want to do, and, and I did do this, I would invest in flying to San Francisco. I would try to go to any meetups or any possible things where Google employees will be, which is basically every single meetup imaginable in San Francisco. So I went there exactly this time last year was the first time I met Jake. And the first time I got in touch with people at Google, in touch with people at Facebook, in touch with people at Apple. And all of that was through physically going to San Francisco. And it really would have been pretty difficult to do that from here in Berlin even. So I would just try to build up relationships. And how I would do that is like volunteering at Google events, like the conference that they did, the Sprint conference a few months ago. People are always looking for volunteers, even these really large companies. And it's just good to know people within the company so you can ask them how to get hired today at Google, because those rules change the whole time, right? If you would want to work at Google today, the first thing I would do is talk to someone who works at Google today and ask them what would be an interesting way in, because it's not about a great portfolio. Believe me, the best people in the world are sending their portfolios into Google, and it's going to be difficult to stand out unless you're the best person in the world. And for sure, I'm not the best person in the world, so I just wouldn't stand out. However, if you already have some people that you know, and I know that they do this at Google, if you know someone at Google or if you've chatted to someone at Google and they thought you might be interesting, they can recommend you to the hiring department and you get an extra point so that you kind of, I don't know, you're like guaranteed a video call or something like that. So if you do have a weak portfolio or if you don't have a lot of experience, then you're at least maybe going to get the call. And that may be 
where they see that you're so enthusiastic that maybe you want to get in there and do an internship or something like that. It might be a bit trickier for people who don't have the connections to do something like that. So I would physically go to the location and then I would go to as many meetups around the topic of what I do as I can. And I would also on meetup.com be searching for Google run events. And I would find the people who are organizing these events on Twitter and on Facebook and on LinkedIn really creepily. And I would directly contact them and I would ask them, hey, what could I do to volunteer at this event? The people who end up getting interviews at AJ and Smart, now our company is much smaller and we have a lot less people applying. Nevertheless, we have like 10 to 20 people applying per day. And since there's only 20 people working at AJ and Smart, it's like a volume that we can't really handle. And if I think about the person who we interviewed this week, the reason that he got an interview here is because he first he contacted me on Instagram, my personal Instagram account, to kind of ask me a little bit about, you know, what would be the best way to apply. And I kind of sent something vague. And then I said, maybe you should ask this person. And that's kind of how it happens. You know, so you're like, maybe you should ask this person. And this person might say, ah, maybe you should do this. And eventually he sent on like a video, which was like perfect for the person who ended up seeing it at AJ and Smart and immediately got a lot of interviews here. So knowing the people, making the connections, being in the physical space really helps is, in my opinion, those are the ways that you can hack your way through getting in those places much quicker. Yeah. I wouldn't say it's impossible, but I don't think you can like game the system your way into Google and Facebook because they're so no, big. No, you're right. They do a good job. They're really rigorous and methodical about how they interview yeah. people because they don't want to be biased in who they hire. They don't want to be hiring people who just look exactly like the folks who are already there. They're yes. very careful and cautious about how they do it. And they have very rigorous standards and they have folks who are making the hiring decisions who are blind, you know, who are not looking at the actual candidates and don't even know, was it a man or was it a woman? Like, they're just looking yeah. at the feedback that was written up. They're just looking at the portfolios. You will have to have a really strong portfolio. You'll have to have a strong resume and you'll have to do really well in those interviews. One question worth asking anyone should ask is like, if you feel that you're very far away and you applied, you can't get in the door or whatever, is that actually what you want? Those are Great places to work by all accounts. And, you know, my experience working at Google was very positive. I also think that I and many people fall under the spell of like Google. It's a great brand name. It'd be wonderful to work there. They treat their employees really well. Can you have as happy or even a happier life experience working someplace else? You should ask yourself that question. You should ask yourself the question of whether the next step that you want to make is to go to a big company or whether you'll learn the kinds of things and build the kinds of things in your portfolio resume by working at a smaller company, the kind where you can make a personal impression, the kind where you can sort of get your way in and learn the things that you need to learn if you're not there yet, if you're not attracting their notice yet. It would be nice to say that there's a trick and you can game your way in, but it's going to be hard. You've got to have a great portfolio and you got to tell your story well. And if you can't do those two things, I don't think you're going to get a job at those companies. Well, the trick is, I guess, understanding what they are actually looking for. And I think that that's difficult to find out just from the standard HR process. That's true. And being in the place, that's the way to, I think, kind of find out you know, yeah. like I have a good friend who he was interested in working in Google. He ended up moving from out of the country. I told him like, look, if you want to work in this place, just move to the Bay Area if you can. Take any job you can yeah. to move here and then see what happens. He's working at one of those big fancy brand companies now. That's not where he started. He started with a startup. Getting in the place does make a huge difference. I just caution that there may not be a shortcut. Yeah, well... You just don't like to believe that there are shortcuts, but um, no. Okay, I will say that for Google specifically, for Google, Facebook, and Apple, 
because they're so large and because they're in the public eye, they do have to have these kind of almost anonymous processes. But for every single Fortune 500 or startup that you might find interesting, a lot of the ways in there are someone giving a recommendation, right? And I think that even if it's just for the internship or even if it's just for helping out at something, most of my ways into companies like this to talk to people and to maybe even end up working with these companies have been like a cascade of one person knowing the next person knowing the next person. One thing to know is if you're going to do that with a big company, the person has to know your work firsthand because they're going to ask. The referral is not just like, oh, here's this person. I Somebody contacted me on LinkedIn or I met him at a meetup. I'm going to give you a referral and now you're in. They got to know your work firsthand. They have to work with you for that referral to hold any weight. So yeah. Potentially, yeah. Big companies are like very methodical. It's harder to game. You should also not feel bad if you get like, when I was applying to Google, I applied to Apple. I never heard back. (laughs) I applied to uh, Philips. I was like, it'd be really cool to work in the Netherlands, you know, me in 2006. Philips, like I did a phone screen with them and then they like never called back. Wow, that was a mistake. There's plenty of companies that like have turned me down over the years. It's okay to like, you may have to take a few cracks at it before you find the right fit and figure out how to tell your story well. Good old Phillips. So Jake, let's finish it up. Really sorry if we ended up skipping over your questions, but it's really lovely to have you all here. Jake, do you have any ask for our audience? Well, first of all, I hate the word ask. So I ask that you don't use the word ask. Beg. Do you want anything? Do you have a beg? Do you have any requests? Do you have any requests? Oh, ask is a verb. That sounds nicer. That does sound nicer. I like Do you that. Have any requests? I have a request. Sign up for the Sprint newsletter because this podcast has turned out to be almost all about design sprints. So, or at least this episode. So go to thesprintbook.com, sign up for the newsletter. I would love to share my uh, posts with you when I send out the newsletter. Oh man, that's, that's good. That's tight. That's like a very tight uh, thing that you're asking for. You're requesting. <laughs> okay, then I have a <laughs> You're a fast learner. Yeah. So I have a request. Um, if you enjoyed this live stream, I guess the thing that would make us decide whether we do it again is just if you tell us that you liked it. So definitely um, what would be really great if you enjoyed this, if you thought this was useful, um, would be great when the episode comes out or if you already have an episode of the podcast that you think is interesting, if you'd share it with your, your buddies. If there's anything we're doing at the podcast that you think is interesting um, for friends of yours or for other designers, just share it with one other designer. And then we have three more listeners. I love it. (laughs) Uh, That would be probably... (laughs) Yeah. And if you liked the live podcast, you should really tell us because... My hunch was it's not it's as good a lot of work. as the as Yeah, I know it's probably kind. not as good as yeah. the real podcast, so but I think it was be, worth be doing it. If you liked it, be loud because you got to convince me that this is a good idea. I don't know. Okay. Really great to have you all listening to the, the podcast every week. Really great that you tuned into the live stream. Thanks so much for all the questions um, and have a beautiful morning or evening or night or whatever time it's and don't forget (laughs) to hit the like button if you didn't hit it already (laughs) jake is like what is the internet what's the like button i have no idea what that is and if you didn't subscribe already maybe hit that button too so yeah everybody thanks so much um it was lovely having you here we're about to stop the broadcast oh yeah i'm at j ice cream on instagram that's the only interesting social media platform that i'm using Thanks so much, everybody. Goodbye. Say bye, Jay. Bye. Bye, Bye, everybody. (laughs) 